This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse Q&A, we talk with licensed clinical social worker Christine Cochiola about being the perfect prey for narcissistic abusers, post-separation abuse, and the abuser's coercive control of the court system. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse Q&A, everyone. Today on our show, we have licensed clinical social worker, Christine Cochiola. But before we get to this episode, let me just define what a narcissist is for this show. So what is a narcissist, you may ask? Well, for the purposes of this podcast, we refer to a narcissist as anyone who has displayed a pattern of behavior that shows a limited capacity to appreciate others' perspectives. It is that simple. Now, if you have not been to our website recently and want to be a guest on our Survivor Story show, please do go to NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. Click that button. Read all the instructions. Send in your email or fill out the guest form there. For those of you that have not heard back from me yet, please go check your junk mail because I've sent out replies to almost everyone. I am still have a little bit of a backlog, but hopefully I'll get to that today. And for others who need support that come to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com, at the top of our page, there's a button that says support button. Well, it just doesn't say support button. It just says support. And you click on that and it takes you to our very own safe social network. Our community members are on there posting in our forums. We have integrated Zoom support meetings every Wednesday and Saturday night. We have meditation ceremonies. We have closure ceremonies. And our members are on there to support you, cheer you on when you need it, give you a shoulder when you need it as well. So if you are looking for support, please do go to NarcissistApocalypse.com, top of the page, press the community support button. Now, another way to get support is to go to DomesticShelters.org. So if you or someone you know are experiencing abuse, you are not alone. DomesticShelters.org offers an extensive library of articles and resources that can help you make sense of what you're experiencing, and they can connect you with local resources as well so you can find ways to heal and move forward. So please do go to DomesticShelters.org to access this free resource today. And on my list here is a note from one of our sponsors, Bloomers Trading Co. Bloomers Trading Co. hand makes stylish garlands for modern events and home and wants you to finally enjoy gathering with your friends and loved ones this holiday season. Bloomers Trading Co. is known worldwide for their like real durable holiday and Christmas garlands. And if you order before November 20th, they are offering you Listeners to this show, 10% off. So head on over to bloomerstradingco.com for 10% off all your holiday and Christmas garlands now. These always sell out fast, and I don't want you to miss out this holiday season. So please do go to bloomerstradingco.com. And everyone, I think that is pretty much it for today as far as things that I have in my notes. I'm sure I could talk about something in my notes here, but we're just going to get to our episode with Christine. And I just want to thank Christine for being a guest on our show. This is an interesting conversation. We start off uh, talking about being the perfect prey and a study that she is doing. And uh, we eventually end up talking about post-separation abuse in, in, in the court system and how 
abusers abuse the court system. And it's a really interesting conversation. I really want to thank Christine once again for being part of the show. And now, without further ado, here is my episode with Christine Cochiola. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse Q&A, everyone. With me today, I have Christine Cochiola. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. I'm great. So for those that don't know Christine, Christine has been a social justice advocate since the age of 19, beginning her career in social work at a local domestic violence sexual assault agency where she still volunteers. She is a college professor teaching social work. Her expertise is in the areas of intimate partner violence, trauma, and child abuse, developing and presenting workshops on these topics, both regionally and nationally. Christine is a 2022 candidate for a doctorate in social welfare attending New York University. Her capstone project is on coercive control and the impact that this abuse has on adult and child victims. She has been an advocate on the state level for coercive control legislation, including Connecticut's Jennifer's Law and of victims of coercive control. She is the mom of two amazing young adults. She hopes to continue to educate adult victims and survivors on how best to support children who have experienced coercive control. So a big thank you for being here, for educating everyone today. And now, you know, without further ado, let's get into, um, you know, being uh, abuse victims being perfect prey. Sure. Thank you so much for that introduction, and thank you so much for having me here, Brandon. I I truly am honored and appreciate it. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm a little bit older, so <laughs> maybe that's why there's a long list. But I think I think what I always uh, try to highlight is that all of those experiences, and I I still was in a relationship with a coercive controller for 35 years. So I always want to tell victims of abuse and survivors of abuse that I'm not trying to insinuate I'm smarter or better than others, but that if it could happen to me and I was teaching on this topic every single semester for the last 20 years, um, I teach on the power and control wheel. Um, I was an advocate since the age of 19, um, very engaged in um, advocating for victims of domestic abuse and sexual assault. I worked for the Department of Children and Families in my younger years, and I've been doing social work my entire life, and I didn't see it in my own life. And that's, that's just, to me, I feel like I was uh, I'm hoodwinked, you know, like, how did this happen to me? And, um, and there's always these conversations around self-worth. And, you know, why do victims stay? And how come it takes seven attempts for victims to leave? And these are, like, really great questions and fantastic questions. But I guess I feel like if I didn't see the signs and I was teaching on it, then doesn't it make sense that a lot of other people who aren't even aware of what these red flags are, that they would stay or that they would have difficulty leaving? Um, so I, I call it perfect prey because I feel like victims are set up in a way based on who they are as individuals, that they are the perfect person for a predator such as a narcissist, um, such as, you know, any of these pathological behaviors that we see that that victims are just set up in a perfect way to be that prey. Um, and so when I finally did leave my ex-husband after multiple attempts, I decided to dive deep into this, as we hear all the time victims do, right? Um, just researching and looking into how did this happen and what are the signs and how did I miss them and, and over and over again. Um, and I said, you know what, I'm going to go and I'm going to get a, a degree in this. I'm going to research this as part of a degree. I always had wanted to get my doctorate and I started researching coercive control at NYU and, um, and decided to do a research study on characteristics of victims 
you know, a lot of people who've listened to the show have uh, read the book, uh, The Human Magnet Syndrome. So is, uh-huh. is your theory, um, you know, I guess rooted in the same type of theory? Sure. So that book is sitting on my shelf and as soon I have like 10 books that I, I started reading and I, I tag pages in them and that book is there because yes, um, the idea that some of us, you know, we've all heard these discussions about, um, the Enneagram and the big five personality test. And, and I, yes, my study is based on this idea of schema theory, which Jeffrey Young came up with. And he and Jan- Janet Klasko uh, created um, these, they came up with this theory that is the 11 life traps. And they say that all of us have life traps. And um, when I began my private practice, I really fell in love with his work and with Janet's work on this, these 11 life traps. Because, we, you know, I have several life traps. We all have life traps. And life traps are maladaptive coping mechanisms that we learn from either childhood, our development, or we're born a certain way, or culture. And so um, what is it about society's impact, the systemic impact of, um, you know, we could talk a little bit about patriarchy or how women are people pleasers or victims in general, whether it's female or male, tend to be really kind-hearted souls. Um, are they born that way or did they grow up in environments where someone maybe kind of, um, they felt like they had to take care of maybe their parents a little bit more or they didn't want to disappoint others. And again, these are all related to those three things, culture, development, and our personality. And I believe that many victims have all of those characteristics that make them um, one of Jeffrey Young's life traps is subjugation. So uh, the schema therapy is mm-hmm. technically, um, you know, uh, putting people into one of 11 types of uh, life trap personalities. And then your therapy is based on, you know, helping someone understanding that personality type, if I'm to understand mm-hmm. that correctly, uh, using that. And now so you're on. taking those different types of personalities and figuring out how someone can... Um, manipulate someone with that type of personality. Exactly, exactly. So Jeffrey is a behaviorist, um, a cognitive behaviorist, and then he and Janet joined forces and created these 11 life traps, and it's a life trap theory. And and what I kept, when I began using his book, I realized I had a life trap of subjugation. I realized. And, I, and when you read the book, um, um, reinventing your life is what it's called. It actually details how did you maybe get this life trap. And I checked all the boxes. And when I took the test, there's a, there's a test for each of the life traps. When I took this particular test, I scored very high in it. And if you score very high in the life trap, it's something that significantly impacts your daily functioning. And so then I said, wow, I'm you know, going to be getting this degree. What can I research? I'm going to do a research study and see if victims have these characteristics. And it's kind of, so I don't know, I, I'm, I'm fairly certain a lot of people know Dr. Uh, Sandra Brown. She has, um, she has a particular um, focus on victims of um, domestic abuse and narcissistic abuse. And she did an, an unpublished study um, through Purdue, and I think she had 600 victims. And with those 600 victims, they tested very high in agreeableness and conscientiousness on the um, the, five, the big five personality test. So I really, when I started researching, and I found this unpublished study, unfortunately, it's unpublished, but when I started researching it, I said, oh, my gosh, this reminds me of subjugation because people who have these subjugation traits often are really big people pleasers and they try to fix things and they really just don't want to upset people. They don't want to upset the apple cart. And and I really wanted to look at this as saying, so back up a little bit, I had have a very successful career. I've had a successful career helping others. And I don't feel that I had self-worth issues. I don't feel that I said, oh, I don't believe in myself. That's why I'm going to stay in this relationship. I feel like I was perfect prey. 
I feel like I just really always want to fix things and make things and make things better. And um, and then I saw this pattern with some of my clients, and that's where I went with the study. So I went on Instagram. And I had 155 people complete the subjugation questionnaire, and I interviewed 11 participants. And I'm just in the process of writing the manuscript now, but most of the people did score very high or high in subjugation. So subjugation is only one of the 11, correct? Correct. So do we need to know what the other 10 are? Well, you know, I mean, I think there's some that are related. So, you know, um, defectiveness, you know, a life trap of defectiveness, thinking that's a self-worth one, right? Thinking you're not good enough. Gosh, if you compound compound subjugation and defectiveness, that's like a perfect remedy for somebody to be abused, right? Because they don't think they're good enough. Um, You know, uh, certainly um, I would say that um, what we know about many people who have these um, predatory behaviors, they have entitlement as a life trap. They think they are entitled to behave in a certain way and it doesn't matter and they have low levels of compassion towards others. Um, so, you know, I think it's really helpful to know them all, but I think that what I'm proposing and what I believe, and I think it's in line with a lot of the discussions about, you know, being a giver, um, with the Enneagram um, and being um, highly conscientious. And and so with the big five personality test, conscientiousness is also, as you probably know, not just like being organized and taking care of everything, but also being conscientious about other people's feelings and, you know, having concerns about that. And, And so what the really interesting part about, I think it's Sandra Brown also found that many perpetrators of domestic abuse are highly disagreeable. Surprise, surprise, Right. So um, and so, you know, what is it that makes these people want to have power over and control others? Well, if they meet someone who comes along and says, you know, I'm going to let you, you know, choose which I don't know which car we purchase or what we have for dinner tonight over and over again. I'm going to continue to be really giving and accommodating to you. Um, then that just em- of course, emboldens perpetrators too, right? It gives them more power. It continues to um, give them carte blanche to have power over someone who really doesn't want to upset the apple cart in the relationship, who really wants to try to please and make everyone happy. So before we get into subjugation, can you define subjugation for us? Sure. So, I mean, I think overall, the way that um, Jeffrey and Janet would um, identify it is that, you know, there's an emphasis on um, putting others before ourselves, taking care of others, and oftentimes allowing others to kind of be in control. And I don't necessarily mean bad control, but certainly allowing others to take the lead oftentimes in our lives. Um, and that taking care of the wants and needs of others before ourselves is primary. That's something that makes us feel good is taking care of others. And, um, and that these are people who oftentimes can be drawn to other people who maybe take, um, take charge. You know, they want to please other people. And Jeffrey would call it, um, these are called early maladaptive That's what all of these are called. Um, So subjugation, defectiveness, entitlement. There are things that we, again, have all of these reasons why we acquire them, but then they continue to develop throughout our life. And what he says, and Janet says, is that they become ingrained in us. Schemas become so ingrained. They become the way that we behave. And when we encounter things in our life, we, we react by using these maladaptive schemas. So they almost in some ways, given the right predator, are going to intensify. Given the right person, they're going to intensify because they are so ingrained in who we are that, you know, if people-pleasing is part of what we are, then we meet someone that wants to be pleased all the time. We're just going to intensify that behavior over and over again. 
after people who are listening understand, you know, uh, what subjugation is, um, I guess, where will we go next with this once we know this information about ourselves? Sure. So I think that, un- so it's, it's, it's about changing that maladaptive schema, right? And so certainly I would say when it comes to victims of abuse, they can't change anything until they're out, right? However, if my goal is, so I actually um, created a program at the college I teach called um, Intimate Partner Violence Sexual Assault Prevention Program. And one of the workshops that my um, student interns uh, present is called Where Is Your Line? And the whole goal behind this workshop is to get people thinking about what are, the, what are the red flags happening in this relationship and where is your line? When are you going to say enough is enough? And, um, and so if we can teach people about knowing that maybe this is their life trap, right, and that that's an unhealthy that's an unhealthy coping skill that they have and that how do we teach them to have lines, to have boundaries in their life. And so I, for me, I feel like when I had this understanding that I had subjugation in all parts of my life, by the way, not just in this relationship, but in many parts of my life, I started to say, okay, how do I create lines? And well, I mean, I'm sure you know that the moment you start to create boundaries with people who are really unhealthy, they oftentimes don't like it, right? <laughs> they oftentimes uh, react negatively. And for me, that became the road to my leaving. Because if my partner continued to have that charlatan, the, the fake facade of being really wonderful a lot of the time, but being really horrible a lot of the time. And so I was caught in this place of who is he? Is he really a horrible person? Is he a nice person? Um, Am I crazy, right? All the gaslighting, am I crazy? Is there something wrong with me? Let me keep working. So subjugation, let me keep working harder. Let me try to do this differently. Let me do that differently. But the moment I realized that I needed to start creating lines, he started reacting more negatively. And that's when it became so much more clear to me that it wasn't me. That I, by understanding that I needed to have boundaries and lines in place, because, so I'm going to back up a minute. One of the things we know about victims of domestic abuse and of these types of, like Dr. Romney talks about, right? Narcissistic abusers, right? One of the things we know is that abuse victims are stripped of their autonomy. They're stripped of their ability to actually think for themselves. Evan Stark, he's the international expert on coercive control. He talks about it. He says, um, the unknowing of what we know, the unknowing of what we actually know. So if we all are born, with intuition and the ability to know what's safe and unsafe, that flight, fight, flight, or freeze mode, right? Like all of those things that we are born with. Yet, if we grow up in a home where maybe, you know, we are a little worried about a parent a little bit more, and my parents are amazing, but if we're a little worried about a parent, we're a little caretaking because we're born that way. Do we start to diminish our intuition, our ability to make decisions that are best for ourselves? Is our autonomy in some ways compromised? What's best for Christine in this situation? And then Christine, at a very young age, gets engaged with someone who has these tendencies. And, you know, there's the whole love bombing and everything's wonderful. And anytime there was a lie, it was always, you know, I was crazy for thinking there was a lie. And so there was all of that for many, many years. Is Christine slowly unable to figure out what she actually knows to be true? Is she stripped of her autonomy to think for herself? And, you know, I guess this could be related to cognitive dissonance, right? Like, um, is, is there an inability to figure out what actually is the reality or am I dissonating from that reality because I can't 
I, I don't have the ability to figure out or to know what I should know, as Evan Sparks says. We, like, unknow what we really should know. And that is if you understand that you are a person who has this maladaptive coping schema, if you understand that and you begin to create your own ability to know what you should know, right? Again, this is not victim blaming at all, but begin to have more autonomy in your life and you create more boundaries. That's when that abuser is going to retaliate. And unfortunately, I would say that the reason why it takes seven attempts to leave is because we know, on average, by the way, seven attempts to leave, is because we know these abusers are really good at performing when they need to. So things get really bad, and then they put on this facade or this apology, or they threaten. You're going to lose everything. You're going to lose your house. You're going to lose your children. All of these horrifying messages back and forth. The victim returns. And, of course, now he's gained more control. So then she's back to being in that subjugated space. And I would say that I definitely attempted to leave at least seven times. I would say that this loss of autonomy now that I'm outside of it, I see that I didn't have the ability to clearly see what was healthy for me and what was unhealthy for me because that is all clouded by the abuser's tactics, by the coercive control. And I would say that when I left in 2017, if I had not received horrific, threatening texts and I blocked him, but emails where I had all the emails going into a special folder so I couldn't see them. But I received about 3,000 in 10 months, intermittent with, um, you know, please come back, you're my soulmate, to horrific, you will lose your children, they will always hate you. Um, the worst thing you could say to any protective parent, right? Um, if I did not receive those, I might have gone back to him. I actually might have gone back to him. So he had to be so horrible to me, so horrible. And this is what we know happens over and over again with victims. So I was going to say, you know, this is what happens with victims. So when it comes to your uh, study that you've been doing and your research that you've been doing, I guess, um, can you, I guess, give us, you know, the, I guess uh, the deep dive of the details of everything that you've uh, found? Sure. So I found that most I, um, most of the victims um, have subjugation, for sure, as a life trap. Um, and in the interviews that I did, the uh, there were 11 victims that came forward to be interviewed. Some of them were still in the relationship. Some of them had gone, left multiple times and gone back. All of them were being stalked. All of them were suffering what we would call post-separation abuse, um, where the, the coercive control intensifies after she leaves. And again, this is another reason why victims don't leave, right? Because it only gets worse. I mean, oftentimes, oftentimes, it only gets worse when um, the victim decides to finally leave. Um, so post-separation abuse, very evident use of the children um, as pawns, um, a long uh, custody disputes. Um, several of the victims are still embroiled in court. Vexatious litigation is what we call it. Um, uh, I mean, harassing. Um, and uh, it's, all, it's like always, like I'm sure you would agree, it's always the same story. Literally, the story is so textbook and just a different person, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. um, and heart, heartbreaking. I mean, just heartbreaking. So, um, yeah, so my hope is that by publishing this, that maybe we begin to, and, and Evan Stark is, um, again, he, when I told him, he's on my committee for um, my research, and when I told him my idea, um, he is such a, um, like, at no point does he like to talk about what victims can do differently, which 
I totally understand. And he said a lot of good it does understanding the characteristics of a victim when he has the heel of his boot on her neck. Um, I mean, uh, quite, you know, quite quite profound, I think. Um, He's absolutely right. He's absolutely right. But I really am very interested in, first of all, supporting parents who are dealing with children who are behaving, unfortunately, very sadly. They're modeling the behaviors of the abuser and how difficult that is for protective parents, but also really engaging us in conversations about educating our young people. We, we need to begin educating. And I do this at the, so I teach at a community college full time. I, I teach um, adjunct at NYU, but, um, and this idea of talking about power and control as an unhealthy characteristic in relationships and what does that look like um, to these college students so that they can begin to make um, better choices for themselves. Where is their line, right? So how does this all lead into post-separation abuse? Yeah, um, so that is a great question because I think that a lot of people are not talking enough about what we call PSA, post-separation abuse. There is just recently um, in, um, in the non-academia world and even in the academic world the uh, notion that the abuse often by these offenders, um, these predators, uh, um, certainly intensifies. As a matter of fact, I mean, we have some really interesting statistics that I can share with you. Like, we know that actually when a victim leaves a coercively controlling relationship, over 90% of victims suffer post-separation abuse. So if the relationship was based on this power and control, which is always what these relationships are when there's a person with um, a pathological disorder, um, I like to call it a characterological disorder, such as narcissism, that oftentimes, um, more often than not, 90% of the time, this is when he's really going to intensify or she is going to intensify that abuse significantly. And it it, it comes out in a, in a myriad of ways. So, um, so what's interesting is that, you know, if there's been coercive control in the relationship, and I should just mention that, you know, we know that some relationships are what we call situational violence, but very, very few of them are. And those situational violence relationships are, you know, where, where there's one person or both people who are involved in aggressive behaviors towards each other, which is horrifying and horrible in and of itself. Relationship dynamic is not based on power and control. We know that close to, again, this number 90% of domestic abuse situations are, are, are just that coercive control based on power and control. And so that's been going on for however long the relationship has been going on. And so when the victim finally decides to, I like to say, escape that relationship, and I call it domestic abuse, by the way, because we're trying, um, I know Jeff Hill wrote a really great um, book, um, and, you know, why does, uh, you know, see what you made me do, and she's out of Australia, and the idea that it's, it's not always violent. Right. That's the problem is that most of these cases, oftentimes the violent act is the last act. Um, and, and, you know, I'm just going to give you a couple of really interesting statistics. Um, a fifth of homicide victims with restraining orders are murdered, with, are murdered within two days of getting that order within two days. And a third are murdered within the first month. So we tell victims to leave. We tell them to get restraining orders. We tell them to go to the police. And then we're now saying that when, when you do all of that, it's actually going to get horrifically, like, just horrible. It's just going to intensify so much. And so this post-separation abuse is uh, the Duluth um, uh, group of people who made the uh, power and control wheel also made a post-separation abuse wheel. Um, in the 1980s, they were um, definitely thinking about power and control as a way to inculcate abuse onto others. And they came up with these ideas that we can use children as proxies against the victim. 
Um, so I'm going to kind of go through what post-separation abuse looks like. Oftentimes that use of the children is happening already in the relationship, um, and it's happening oftentimes overtly where the uh, victim is being undermined or ridiculed, um, oftentimes um, dismissed or diminished in the family system. Um, but also it could be going on covertly. Um, I'll just give a, a little example. So when my, um, my offender, when my ex, um, when I caught him cheating the first time and come to find out it was kind of like he had two lives, virtually the entire relationship. But when I caught him the first time, um, I left with the kids for the weekend and went to my mom and dad's and he was begging me to come home. And then at some point was also saying, you know, I could have you arrested for kidnapping the children. And I was just, in, you know, I was very overwhelmed and filled with anxiety. And um, But then he kept begging, and I came back after the weekend with the kids and said, we're going to work it out. We're going to go to therapy. And um, I went to work that night to teach. And it wasn't until, so my daughter was 9 and my son was 10, and it wasn't until my daughter was 17 when there was an incident between her father and she, and um, and she shared with me that at that age, he began telling my children that I was crazy, that I make up stories, that I couldn't be trusted, and that I suffered from severe depression. And so that domestic abuse by proxy, unbeknownst to me, by the way, for eight years, was going on and started when my children were nine and ten. And so he was laying the groundwork. He was already laying the groundwork to harm me. Um, and of course, um, you know, part of my area of interest is this, like, that's a significant psychological abuse to children. Um, and, and, and just like, how could we not acknowledge children as victims of coercive control and as victims of domestic abuse? We call them witnesses all the time. We call them, you know, they, they witnessed it or they were exposed to it. And I am just adamant about, no, they actually experienced it. Whether they watched it overtly or covertly, they experienced it as victims. Um, so that's like one way um, that these perpetrators begin to insidiously this hidden abuse insidiously abused the adult victim and the child victims. Um, sometimes they're neglectful um, or abusive towards the children. They might, you know, not really show that they care about the children. They might, um, in some ways, have a child who's a scapegoat, um, have a child who maybe seems to be the one they're least proud of, the one that doesn't fulfill them in some way, and they make it known. Um, they oftentimes will discard either a child or, of course, they are discarding the adult victim. That adult victim becomes their scapegoat, um, and that person is dismissed or diminished within the family system entirely. Um, as, as we talk, you know, about oftentimes the isolation of the victim. So um, these perpetrators often will dismiss family and friends that mean something significant to the, the children, to the victim, and undermine those family members in an attempt to isolate, and those friends in an attempt to isolate um, the victim, the adult victim, and the child um, victim. And these are all, again, post-separation abuse, because what we know is these are times when the um, abuser will begin to ensure that he gets alliances with people so that the victim feels that she, um, in the case of a female victim, feels that she has no one that she can turn to because he's turned everyone against her. Um, in the case of a client of mine, you know, um, where she's been, um, and we call it, again, the children were used as proxies, so the children have turned entirely against her. They um, have nothing to do with their mother now. It's been about two years. And of course, she's devastated. There's nothing um, more devastating than that. Um, but when her children were talking to her, she was telling all of her friends and family that she was turning the children against him. So the flipping of the narrative is constantly happening. So I, I like to say, 
that the accusation is the confession. Whatever this abuser is accusing the other person of, that's actually solely his confession. Um, and I see it over and over again with clients and certainly saw that in the research study. Um, you know, the, the, the counter-parenting I think I've already mentioned, it's another post-separation abuse. So imagine that, you know, you're supposed to have the children home at five and you're the abuser and you bring them home at four and the victim isn't there yet. Or you bring them home at eight. You totally disregard any of the orders by the court. You um, certainly ensure that if you're supposed to be paying a certain amount, you don't pay that amount. Um, that would be an aspect of financial abuse for sure. Um, you, um, you know, I, I guess another example of like, so you maybe send the children home with particular items that, you know, you both as parents had agreed that the children wouldn't have, you know, whether it's a new toy or it's, um, you know, maybe you're allowing them access. Um, I like to call it, like, especially as children reach pre-adolescence, they begin shopping, parent shopping, because, you know, there's going to be one parent that's going to give them what they want. And, and, and the sad part of this is that then we create children who are behaving in much the same entitled way as the abuser. And so how does someone parent a child who at one home is getting everything they want and allowed to do whatever they please versus a parent at the other home who's trying to create boundaries and structure and, and healthy things that the parents do to ensure their children grow up um, having a healthy character. Um, and so the abuser wants to undermine that. I, um, I wrote a letter for the International Coercive Control Conference. Um, um, we had our first conference this year, and, uh, and the letter is from the, um, is from the abuser to the child. And it basically talks about, you know, that the child is really just a pawn. You are just there to serve me. You are just there to fulfill my ego to ensure that I actually feel good about myself as a parent. And that is your only role. So my love for you is entirely conditional. And the moment you violate that, the moment you violate that in some way, either by aligning with the victim or maybe questioning my authority, my power and control over you, the moment you do that, I'm going to treat you just like I treat the adult victim. So, so when we talk about children being unable to actually um, make a healthier choice for themselves, how could they? How could they do that when they are trapped? They are entirely trapped because if they align with the victim, then they're going to be harmed by the offender in much the same way. And if they align with the offender, they know that they are also in some ways alienating themselves from someone that actually probably is the healthier parent. So they're, they're cornered, um, for lack of a better word. Um, and so many of these offenders will keep and will keep the victims engaged in court for an extended period of time. And oftentimes part of this post-separation abuse is they will attempt to get custody simply because either they don't have to pay as much in child support, but also simply because it hurts the adult victim. That's all it is about. They know the adult victim wants nothing more than to have as much time as possible with the children, and so the perpetrator will do whatever he can to prevent that. And that means remaining engaged and embroiled in custody disputes. Um, we know that um, the, uh, so let me think about this statistic for a second. I don't want to get it wrong, but that most custody disputes, most, um, are domestic abuse. That much is for sure. So when we hear about somebody being engaged in court for three or four years over custody, the red flag should be going off. That's domestic abuse. That's not a custody dispute. That's domestic abuse. That's vexatious litigation where I'm going to use the court at any cost to harm you, and 
I'm going to take whatever matters the most to you, and that is going to be the children. And so these um, ideas of um, creating like a financial burden, by the way, right? Because if I'm involved in court for an extended period of time, then of course that's going to cost more money. And so, you know, there's this whole movement right now. It's um, Me Too Family Court, hashtag Me Too Family Court, judicial accountability, because once these victims get into court, um, abusers actually get custody upwards of 50% of the time, the moment a victim says that she has been abused. Uh, Joan Nair just completed a study on this. And when I say one in two times, one out of two times, um, abusers will actually get custody. Um, I, I mean, I, I don't know about you, but that's just, it's just so astounding to mm-hmm. me. Um, and, and these victims so powerless. So they are again told in an insidious way, don't mention the abuse. They're again told, if you leave, this is what's going to happen. Um, and uh, heartbreaking. I mean, absolutely heartbreaking. Victim thinks she's going into court in maybe worst case scenario, 50-50. And then this ends up happening to her. Um, so, again, another example of post-separation abuse. When a lot of those things happen, you know, when the abuser is the one that's actually getting the custody. How big of a role does uh, or do resources play as far as um, rich, poor, you know, mm-hmm. um, at that point, your your money being shut off from you and getting proper representation within everything uh, to fight the fight? Yeah. No, absolutely. So, um, we so financial abuse is another aspect of post-separation abuse, right? And so, this idea that I'm if I'm the um, perpetrator and I have access to the funds, I'm going to cut you off in as in, in as many ways as possible. And then we have victims who certainly um, are left in destitute circumstances, um, financially unable to afford an attorney and what attorney wants to take a case like this, by the way. Um, and it's definitely 50% of custody disputes are um, domestic abuse cases. And so, you know, the idea that the perpetrator is going to exert control wherever he can. So if she's not living with him, then he's going to, he's going to start to, again, if he can cut off finances, and in some way harm her so that she's left in a more destitute situation than she would have ever been in if she had just stayed. Um, And, you know, it makes me, when I think about financial abuse, again, another tactic of post-separation abuse and certainly a tactic of coercive control in the relationship, you know, we often talk about how people who live in poverty are left in dire circumstances and um, how they have no voice. They have no ability to get support in the legal, uh, no legal recourse. If you don't have funds, how are you able to get support? So criminals who do offenses actually are allowed to have lawyers. They get free defense um, attorneys, which is absolutely fine. But how do we not help victims of domestic abuse have the same ability to have a lawyer? It, it just makes no, it's nonsensical it's nonsense. Yes. Yeah, so we had a recent episode uh, with a guest, uh, our survivor story episode with a guest named Saturday. And yeah. a lot of Saturday's story is, most of Saturday's story is post-separation abuse. And, an mm. inter- you know, it was, it was an interesting episode because it wasn't just her story. It was a story about her stepdaughter. And it was also a story about her st- the stepdaughter's mom. And Saturday came from a a a uh, middle to upper class background, and the stepmom had sorry, and and uh, her stepdaughter's mom came from a background that was not wealthy at all. So when mm-hmm. during the post separation abuse, you know. Uh, Saturday had a lot more money and more support, family support to fight and, and, and get things. But, you know, we find out during the story that 
that the other person didn't have that and they have they made uh, there's a lot of mistakes on their part uh made on the way because they didn't have the legal advice that they needed to get um all these little things and you know saturday's lawyer was pretty much it was paid for you know obviously um they uh still had uh not issues with paying lawyer, but they still had um, a budget to spend. But you rarely hear, um, you know, eventually now um, a lawyer within the office heard about the the stepdaughter's mom and is taking them on pretty much pro bono, which is very, very, very rare. Right. Um, very. To, to help them along the way with, you know, because now they're a team. They're all uh, a team now. It's rare that you can get the 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 ex and and you all on the same page because everyone's pretty wary of each other uh throughout this process but they became a team because you know the stepdaughter is the pawn in the game for everyone um mm-hmm. and you know you know talking about power and, and control if if you everyone listens everyone should actually listen to that episode in conjunction with this when we talk about power control um in in in, in the post separation abuse you know during the relationship this person was um I called them masterful uh, with their language and, and everything that was going on. The way that they controlled the situation was very much um, uh, a mastery um, of how they were doing things. But as soon as a little bit of that control was gone, and especially when the divorce proceedings begin and the separation begin begins, and that control is gone with this or slipping away with this specific person, they became unhinged. And sometimes you see like an unhinged where, you know, the mask is gone and and they go. Sometimes people are able to control it a little bit better um, in the sense of uh, how reactionary they are. But this person became from, you know, under control to just they're capable of anything and they're grasping at straws to gain that control back in any which way. And, you know, with post-separation abuse, you know, that, that, uh, that's pretty much what it comes down to. Like the other person has completely lost control and they're trying to get it back in any way, shape or form. And the old person you might've been dealing with is, is completely gone and now you're dealing with someone who isn't rational because in their mind they're like they're just trying to figure out how to gain that back. Um, and, I've, and I've gone off on a tangent here, but as far as you know, you know, within everything you've studied, within the pathology of the abuser uh, aspect of post-separation abuse, is there a way to ha- have them think they get that? sense of control back um, so they stop doing what they're doing? Um, You know, so this is, I mean, I feel like this could be like a whole nother rabbit hole because, uh, you know, when we talk about, right, like the pathology of the abuser, I could go on for, you know, a very long time about discussing like, you know, this, this idea that no. So the answer to the question is no, because, so, you know, the ego for this person is so fragile, right? And they have so much shame. And because of that, anything that is considered a mar on who they feel they want to believe they are, they want to believe they are, um, that there is no other recourse than to have a form of retaliation. Now, again, like you said, this sounds like a really extreme form. And I should mention that of the total domestic violence homicides, 75% of them were victims killed when they left. So, so there, there is a pathology of I need to retain that control at any cost. And you probably have heard about um, all of these laws that are sprouting up all over the country now. Um, Kyra's, Kira's law, Caden's law, Ty's law, Grayson's law. These are children. So the abuser has lost, has, as you said, you know, totally unable to contain themselves anymore that they actually harm 
and in this case, filicide of children, the, the murder of children of the, of the victim. And often that's when suicide happens of the perpetrator. It's actually like 72% of those cases are male perpetrators um, who are the, the murderers of children. Um, so, so back to your question, I think what we know is that depending on the level of the pathology, right? I mean, I, you, you know, I know you know this, but, you know, there's a spectrum of the disorder. And I don't like to call it a mental illness at all because I don't think this is in the realm of depression, anxiety, or any of those things. These are, these are characterological issues that cannot be changed. They cannot be changed. These people are a certain way. They will not change. And there is no ability to try to alter their reactions, um, all that we can do is educate people on prevention and getting into these relationships and also have the support services when they leave. And that's part of the problem. The reason why there's post-separation abuse is because we don't have the supports in place so that victims don't suffer that post-separation abuse. It's the, the, the overwhelming issue we have right now, in my opinion, is that we don't have a judicial system and a legal system. So I'm talking also police that truly understand the manifestations of these characterologically disordered individuals. And until we have people, I didn't, I didn't see it. No, great, granted, it was in my home. I was living it. It's a little bit different, but but my point is, is that these experts out in the world, judges, lawyers, attorneys, excuse me, judges, lawyers, and police officers, they believe they have the knowledge. And I, I'm sorry to say they don't. They don't understand this. The pathology is so difficult to understand that until they are willing to truly understand the pathology of these abusers and understand the tactics of coercive control, these types of horrific incidences are going to continue. And, and that takes people being willing to say, by the way, in a world where, I mean, I'm not trying to be rude, but in a world where there are many people in positions of power who 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 have a belief system that is centered around patriarchy, whether they truly believe it overtly or it's just a, 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 a feeling that many of us have grown up with. I mean, we can add religion into this, you know I mean? So many of us have grown up in a way that there's a certain position of power that certain people have. Then it doesn't have to be male. It can be male and female. That they have, so judges have positions of power. And until these people are willing to acknowledge, they don't have all of the knowledge. So they don't have all of the information to protect victims. Until they're willing to acknowledge their shortcomings, that this is a really difficult pathology to understand. That even the most astute of us, even the most astute of us miss it. Until they're willing to actually acknowledge that, then we're not going to get anywhere in preventing this. So we're going to get, we're certainly not going to get past post-separation abuse and the judicial system and the court system. Um, it's just, they're, they are like, it's like that picture that's online of coercive controllers. They have the puppet strings and they are, these abusers are coercively controlling the court system. They coercively control, they manipulate, they gaslight police. They manipulate, they gaslight judges. They manipulate, they gaslight attorneys. They have victims' advocates telling victims, well, he's willing to go to therapy, so if he goes to therapy, will you, um, will you let the case go? Will you, you know, drop the case? And um, my situation, no. I want him to go to batterer's intervention. Now, does batterer's intervention work for these people? No, but therapy definitely doesn't work. That's my next study, the gaslighting by therapist, because this happens all too much. So, Sorry. Oh, no. So I've been privy to read 
you know, some documents that, you know, people go to those batterers prevention type uh, programs or, you know, the domestic abuse after the, you know, programs for the people that have to go through them. And I'm reading all the things that they are, they're saying on there. And it's really just regurgitation of what they're expected to say. You know, Mm -hmm. they've been taught, okay, whatever, but now I have to fill out this form at the end. This is what I've learned, blah, 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 blah. You know, all all you have to do to pass that is to regurgitate what you've been told for the last week. And then someone says, okay, they've gone through the course. It doesn't mean anything, (laughs) you know, but it satisfies a court's like, uh, you know, it satisfies a court that they went through it. I mean, a person with... Uh, who might not be disordered in any sort of way, that might be helpful, you know, but that's very slim. But when you're talking about people with uh, disorders and things along those lines, I mean, they know what they're doing. They know, okay, all I got to mm-hmm. do is this, is then I'm, they'll, they'll, you know, then, then they won't bother me anymore. Exactly. This is the problem, right? So we have a system, the systemic issues that are not working, and then we have people working in that system who live their lives, and again, this is not a, like a, they live their lives in this patriarchal lens, you know, this, this lens of, you know, there are certain people who know better, um, who, there are certain people in our society who, quote unquote, are better, are more knowledgeable. And so really what we need is people to begin to remove that lens and to look at what are we? What what knowledge can I gain as a judge, as so police officers? You know, I mean, obviously the Gabby Petito case. Like there is an unacknowledged um, deficiency in these systems. No one's willing to admit it. No one wants to talk about it. And frankly, we just passed Connecticut. Just passed Jennifer's law. It's the second law. Excuse me, it's the third law in the United States, Hawaii and California have it, where we codified coercive control as a form of domestic violence. And it's fantastic. That's wonderful, right? Colorado has just passed a similar law. So now we have four laws. And do you know that in the state of Connecticut, there were two laws that went to judiciary hearing, and um, there were 11 hours of testimony. We had Evan Rachel Wood testify testify Marilyn Manson's Mm ex-girlfriend. We had Laura Richards, the creator of Dirty John, the producer of Dirty John podcast and the the Netflix series. She testified. And do you know that we had the Connecticut Coalition Against Domestic Violence against our piece of legislation? They were interested in the more watered-down version of a piece of legislation. And I'll tell you why. Because Connecticut Coalition Against Domestic Violence gets $3 million a year from the judicial department in the state of Connecticut. And the judicial department did not want our law. The Connecticut Bar Association did not want our law. And so we have groups of people who do not want to be trained on understanding the pathology of 90% of domestic abuse. It's coercive control. It's inculcated by an abuser who most likely has narcissistic uh, personality disorder. I, I don't, again, usually like, I mean, you know, like I don't want to draw, I know a lot of people use that word a lot, but really what we're talking about here is someone who has this pretty significantly. And we have a system that is not willing. And Connecticut is just an example of that. Thankfully our law passed, but it wouldn't have had we not had 11 hours of testimony and some very prominent people, including Evan Stark speaking also um, at our event, at our, at our judicial hearing. You've given us a lot of knowledge here today, a lot of uh, not just knowledge, but like just a lot for us to think about. And, you know, so before we we end off our show, is is there something that we haven't covered that you want to mention? I guess I just would love for us all to begin to believe victims. We need to believe, we need to believe victims and not question them and not ask why they stayed because that's a false narrative. There's a lot of reasons why victims stay. There's, there's so many that almost it's safer to stay in some instances. And every victim who's out there listening right now, 
please don't take that to mean that you shouldn't leave because you should leave, but we understand why you haven't. And we all have a part in supporting victims and supporting their stories and not asking why didn't she leave, but ask why did he abuse? That would be, that's like really important to me. So, Christine, tell everyone where they can find you. Sure. So, I am on Instagram. Coercive Control is IPV, Intimate Partner Violence. And I am also, um, my website is christinecochiola.com, C-O-C-C-H-I-O-L-A. I'm very interested in supporting protective parents. Um, and I'm doing some coaching now in supporting people who are trying to help their children with the coercive control experiences that they had in the home. So I'd love to be able to help people. Well, Christine, you helped a lot of people today, and I thank you for it. You were wonderful, and I appreciate you being here and sharing everything. And everyone, I'll have everything about Christine in the show notes uh, to find her if you have trouble spelling certain things. So once again, Christine, a big thank you for being here today. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you for all that you're doing to bring awareness. I, I can't even tell you. I so much appreciate it. Thank you. Well, thank you. And from Christine Cochiola and I, we hope you have a good night.